Welcome to this podcast series on communicating European Union environmental law. I'm Anya Ryle, co-director of the Centre for Law and the Environment at University College Cork. The Centre is a focal point for our research, teaching and advocacy work in the field of environmental law. This podcast series is part of an outreach project funded by the Department of Foreign Affairs Communicating Europe Initiative 2020. The aim of the podcast series is to explore aspects of EU environmental law in a manner that appeals to a wide audience. For this podcast, I'm joined by Judge Anthony Collins. Anthony Collins is a judge at the General Court of the European Union in Luxembourg. He is also an adjunct professor at the School of Law here at UCC and regularly delivers lectures and seminars to our students. Judge Collins is speaking with me today in a personal capacity. Judge Collins, thank you for joining me today for this podcast. Thank you very much, Anya. It's a great pleasure to have the opportunity to contribute towards expanding public knowledge of environmental law. Very important in ensuring that environmental law is actually enforced. Yes, indeed. And I suppose to start us off, can you tell me about your career to date? Uh, prior to your appointment to judicial office, you were, of course, a senior counsel in the Law Library in Dublin, practicing in the field of pro public law including the European uh, Union law? That's so. Uh, in effect, what happens uh, in practice in the law library is that one tends to end up uh, engaged in what's called negative specialisation. And that means that you end up doing work in a given field. You don't become a specialist. You just don't do other areas of work. And over time, I ended up having a practice that basically involved either defending the state or suing the state in any area where the state would be involved. And that obviously included uh, areas such as planning and environmental law. I couldn't ever have held myself out as a specialist in those areas, but I was a <clears throat> specialist in public law in general, I suppose, and as it does now. And after about four years, I uh, was invited to become a referendaire in the Court of Justice. And I worked with uh, the then former Chief Justice Tom O'Higgins and, as it turned out, the future Chief Justice John Murray. I was there for about six and a half years. In those days, environmental law was uh, nowhere near as important an aspect of EU law as it has become since. And therefore, most of our work would have been engaged in uh, cases concerning the four freedoms, for example, and proceedings against member states for failing to comply with their obligations. So areas that people would have traditionally seen as being linked to EU law. When I came back as junior counsel, uh, the EU, as in a number of different areas, decided that Ireland had was non-compliant. And I, I, I represented the state in quite a number of cases taken by the Commission against Ireland for failure to comply with its uh, obligations under the Habitats Directive, Waste Directive, etc. When I became senior counsel, I then would have represented uh, applicants in a number of uh, cases before the High Court uh, and Supreme Court uh, in the area of environmental law as part of my general public law practice. After that, the powers that be asked me to become a judge in the general court, and that's where I have been since 2013. Yes, indeed. And I suppose to ask you the general question, um, has European Union law had a significant impact on the development of environmental law in Ireland, in your view? You, you mentioned there the Habitats Directive, for example, but it would be interesting to hear your perspectives of particular impacts that EU law has had in the development of our own domestic environmental law. 
I think it's probably fair to say that uh, prior to the entry into force of the Single European Act, which is the moment when the EU gets direct competences in the field of environmental law, before that time, environmental law in Ireland, I think, would fairly have been said to be something of a collection of rags and tatters. That's the phrase that was used to describe Irish constitutional law prior to the 1960s by Professor Houston in a foreword to John Kelly's book on the Constitution. There really wasn't uh, environmental law, certainly environmental law as we know today. So if it were it not for uh, EU membership, you would have had to have a sufficient political consensus inside Ireland to have developed a corpus of environmental law. And it's not clear from the type of approach that Ireland adopted towards EU law and the implementation of EU law, that there was a sufficient political consensus in the country to uh, enact and certainly not to enforce environmental legislation. So in many ways, EU law is the backbone of uh, environmental law in Ireland, if I can put it that way. You can only pick a number of examples that are very clear. For instance, uh, if you take case C49401, Commission versus Ireland, I mean, this is a a case which effectively developed out of a series of complaints around the country made by activists and sometimes people who weren't activists, sometimes people just had a grudge against what their neighbours were were doing. But these complaints were collected by certain Mr. Liam Cashman, who's well known to everyone who's involved in environmental law, and they were brought together in a single action against Ireland to demonstrate the tolerance of illegal dumps and illegal landfills. And of course, we, it's a matter of public record, I represented the status junior counsel, Peter Charlton was the counsel, was my, led me in the case. And part of our defence was to say that, of course, this there was evidence here of individual breaches and we attempted to uh, answer the charges against the state in relation to these individual breaches. But that was to no avail because what the Commission wanted to prove and ultimately succeeded in convincing the court uh, that environmental law, that the waste directive was being systemically <clears throat> breached in Ireland and that uh, the Irish system simply wasn't enforcing or upholding the waste directive in any meaningful way whatsoever. Another example that can be given was the saga of the septic tanks. C18808 was uh, an action taken against Ireland because uh, we know the definition of waste is uh, material that is effectively thrown away or is no longer used. It may have a use, but it is when you discard that gives you that gives you waste. And Ireland didn't implement the, the waste directive insofar as it applied to septic tanks. And not so much, this, I think it's important to bear in mind, not so much the state of old and inadequate septic tanks, it was the fact that from septic tanks water is discharged. By definition, no matter how clean that water is, it constitutes waste for the purpose of EU law. There was no monitoring or control on that waste. Of course, we can obviously imagine that this was having some practical damage to the environment as well. But the fact is that even as a matter of principle, an issue arose. Ireland was condemned by the Court of Justice in October 2009. And between that judgment and a second judgment delivered in December 2012, in case C37411, Commission versus Ireland. Uh, Ireland hadn't implemented the waste directive, which effectively meant monitoring what was going on with septic tanks. It did not necessarily mean getting rid of septic tanks. It meant just simply monitoring, acknowledging this was waste and monitoring, controlling it. Ireland was then subjected to a fine 
and there was a uh, 12,000 uh, euro a day daily fine until the directive had been properly transposed. But at the end of the day, this was a failure to transpose the waste directive in a very important particular, when you look at the entire country, for over 19 years. The list is legion. The Derry Bryan saga began with a judgment of the Court of Justice. Obviously, it began beforehand in case C215 of 2006. And uh, of course, in those days, the, the state defended for a long time afterwards as well the concept that it, what you could do would be is you could buy retention permission. You could get around, by applying for retention permission, you get around the obligations laid down in the Environmental Impact Assessment Directive. And uh, again, it wasn't something that the state let go. The state defended this position for a number of years afterwards until finally it was forced in subsequent judgments, which I think was delivered in, in December 2012 as well. Uh, fines were imposed in Ireland. And it was only at that stage that Ireland complied with its obligations. Ireland was condemned in C67 of 99 for failure to communicate a list of sites in the Habitats Directive. What that meant was Ireland wasn't implementing the Habitats Directive concerning the level of nitrates in water, the level of phosphates in water, the failure to have a system of a proper system of urban waste water treatment. So the lists of non-compliance by Ireland of its environmental law ob obligations at EU law was, is simply <laughs> it's incredibly long. And the lesson seemed, seemed certainly to be that on, unless and until the Commission went to the second stage of the enforcement procedure before the European courts and Ireland was subject to a fine, it was only at that stage that the law was being taken seriously by the state it must be borne in mind by the state and state agencies. And I think it's fair to say, I don't think I'm letting any secrets out of the bag here, that there would have been a certain uh, reluctance, uh, I think, towards the idea of even applying some of these rules uh, on the part of the state, which is fairly evident from the defences that were put forward, but an astonishing reluctance to comply with rules which the state had uh, signed up to because there's no record, at least to the best of my knowledge, of the state ever voting against any, the adoption of any of these directives. Uh, I think the state willingly went along with all of them. And yet, when it came to implementing and applying them, dragged its heels. And I think what's very important as well was that the, the existence of this EU law framework gave rise to the creation of networks of activists in the state who were uh, prepared to, in effect, act as uh, private law enforcers, often at considerable risk to their own financial safety, by making complaints in the first place to the Commission. And in that regard, the Commission has to be credited with having not only accepted those complaints, but having been prepared to act on those complaints by way of infringement proceedings, as we can see oftentimes quite successfully from the Commission's point of view. Uh, but also, I think that it it was uh, great assistance in demonstrating to the people of Ireland uh, in every single part of the uh, state that uh, EU law actually counted for something, because uh, not only could they bring complaints, but in certain cases, and we've seen that more in what I would call a second phase of enforcement, where people bring actions in their own name. There are obviously some people who are well known for doing this, but on the other hand, there are also many other groups or private individuals whose names have not been recorded history in quite the same way, who have contributed towards the enforcement of environmental law in Ireland through actions they've taken themselves. And as I stated earlier, often at very, very considerable financial risk to themselves. You've had 
a large number of actions taken out of Ireland on issues such as costs of proceedings. You've had issues emerging from Ireland concerning the issue of standing, which is a very important matter, which I'll touch on later, I think, in the course of the podcast. And then also the, the number of issues have been arisen, substantive issues in EU environmental law, if I can put it that way, have arisen out of references for preliminary ruling from the Irish courts to Luxembourg, which have allowed Luxembourg then to give answers that have some practical application in the legal orders of the member states. By any standards, that has provided us with an incredibly rich account of developments over a very significant period of time uh, and demonstrating, I think, in a very compelling way, just how impactful EU environmental law has been, whether it's across waste, habitats, standing costs. As you say, there's a, a legion list of issues where EU law has made a very significant difference. And I suppose moving on, can you tell us a little, uh, Judge Collins, about your current role at the Court of Justice of the European Union? Well, at present, I'm judge of the general court. Until 1988, all the jurisdiction that we have in our court was uh, jurisdiction exercised by the Court of Justice. In 1988, uh, the member states decided that two particular areas of law, competition law and staff cases, should be hived off to another court. And the reason for this simply was because they were taking up too much of the Court of Justice's time. And uh, they were hived off to this other court and the other court would the right of appeal against the decisions of that court. Uh, of course, in those days, we this is hard to believe now, but in those days there were 12 judges in the general court, there were 12 member states. And over time, uh, this court has expanded in line with the enlargement of the EU, such that it now has uh, um, not only 27 judges, but as a result of decisions made, it's expanded in size, in fact, to in theory 54, although there are only 49 judges actually in office at the moment. The function of the general court is in effect at the moment to deal with all direct actions taken by private individuals against decisions made by the European institutions. So we are basically a first instance administrative law stroke judicial review court. That's how it would be regarded as uh, if you look at it structurally. What is important in that context, I think, is the question is how do you access that court? And that gives rise to a number of different questions. When the EU was established, uh, I suppose not the EU, the European Economic Community was established, the rules concerning visibility uh, of actions were extremely uh, strict. And a definition given to the concepts of what's called direct concern and individual concern uh, were quite harsh, quite narrow. And in effect, it amounted to a structure under which you only had standing to challenge decisions that had a direct and individual effect on your circumstances. So if a decision is addressed to you, there is no difficulty. But if a decision isn't addressed to you, but you happen to stand, you are affected directly by that decision, then, of course, you would have a uh, standing. But there was no concept of actio popularis or uh, no concept of challenging legislative acts. The only measures that could be challenged in reality were regulatory acts, which had a direct individual impact upon persons. Now, despite the, the, the fact that a lot has changed since the mid-1950s, the rules on standing remain very, very uh, narrow in the EU, uh, EU courts. And of course, this gives rise to interesting questions, which uh, we are teasing out uh, at the moment. I can comment further on this if you wish. 
I can't. I'm sure um, other people would be very interested to know what I have to say, but because um, the Irish Convention Compliance Committee is currently engaging directly with this issue, I will remain silent. Well, I'll uh, let you remain silent, but I'm actually quite happy to make uh, some observations if you wish. I think it's quite interesting what's happening uh, in this regard. What's it? It seems as if personally, I would think that there is no real alternative other than treaty amendment. I think that probably is the only way in which you're going to open up the standing. We in our court, I think it's fair to say, uh, try to have in general as open a standing policy as possible. That's not written down anywhere, but that's what we try to do, I think, in, 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 in practice. And I think there's evidence of that going back quite a number of years. Uh, however, from the point of view of the law as it stands, these efforts tend to be rejected. There was an interesting case recently in uh, in which the uh, cities of Paris, Brussels and Madrid uh, brought a direct action to our court. And the challenge, basically what they said was, is that the Commission had allowed certain standards for emissions in cars to be adopted and the consequence of the adoption of those standards was to make those vehicles more polluting than the standards those cities wished to adopt for vehicles that circulated within their own areas. And the question was, did they have standing to challenge that decision? And such standing was afforded to the uh, cities in question in, the, in, that, in those particular cases. But in a subsequent set of litigation, which has become more, uh, I think, well known, and the city of Brussels, uh, which has some powers concerning the sale and marketing and use of products affecting plants in the Brussels region, wanted in effect to challenge decisions concerning the permission given by the Commission to allow glyphosate to be used inside the EU. And it brought proceedings saying we are a state authority, we have to apply these rules because we have to apply these rules, we're directly and individually concerned, so we have standing to bring the proceedings. And that, that action, in fact, has just concluded with the judgment delivered on the third of this month. Uh, what's interesting about the action from the point of view of the, I suppose, observer is that uh, it's KC352-19. Uh, the general court dismissed the action as inadmissible. I think that probably was a correct reflection of the state of the law. The case was run on two bases. Basis one was that the EU had not complied with its obligations under the Aarhus Convention. This point has been run before, but what's interesting is to look at the different uh, uh, approaches adopted uh, in the court, because in the court, the classic line was taken that for the, the EU, the Aarhus Convention, although EU is bound by it, cannot amend EU primary law. That's a matter of constitutional construction. It's dealt with in a few lines. It's a classic position adopted uh, by not only the court in this area, but in all other areas, despite the fact that EU law is a monist system and the EU is bound by international agreements that it enters into. Notwithstanding that, those international agreements can't have the effect of amending EU primary law. And you can see the logic of that, uh, because it would be a bit like Ireland adopting a similar position in international law and then saying that the 
treaties the state has entered into can amend the constitution. Clearly, that wouldn't be a very uh, acceptable uh, position to have. But what was interesting in the Advocate General's opinion, the reason he gave as to why uh, the Aarhus Convention couldn't be relied upon by the uh, city of Brussels was because the Aarhus Convention, in fact, gives rights to citizens, people, individuals, as against the public authorities. And of course, here, the city of Brussels was acting as a public authority, therefore couldn't rely upon standing rights under the Arvis Convention. Now, this was an interesting approach adopted by the Advocate General, because the Advocate General himself attempted to construe EU law in a way that would have given the city of Brussels standing to bring the proceedings. But the Court of Justice rejected this on the classic lines. And uh, I think that's where we, we are at at the moment. The Advocate General's opinion, Advocate General Bobek, which was delivered on the 16th of July of this year, uh, excited a lot of comment um, amongst judges and commentators and so on. But it has, again, if I can put it this way, these attempts have not gone anywhere. And I think it's noteworthy as well that the Court of Five Judges dealt with the uh, case, which means that the court, which is very quick to send cases to a grand chamber of the court, didn't send this case, notwithstanding the position of the Advocate General. So it's clear that we have reached something of an impasse in relation to those matters. Where the Aarhus, I'm aware that there are negotiations between the EU and Aarhus Convention as to how this is to apply, that's a separate matter, but that's where the uh, legal system stands at present. Of course, it has to be said that the strict standing rules do not mean that people do not have access to the court. I think it's very important to point out that in the vast majority of cases, and particularly I would have thought in areas of environmental law, it's not so much the theory of the rules that count, it's their application and practice that counts. And of course, the application in practice of a lot of rules uh, depends on decisions taken by national authorities, which are challenged in the national courts and out of those challenges where it is necessary to rule on EU law points and where EU law is doubtful, because there's now so much EU law, a national judge can rule on EU law without referring to the Court of Justice. It's not a big unknown anymore. References only are meant to occur when there are new points of law involved, and many of the points have been dealt with quite adequately under the rules as is. That enforcement, which makes every judge EU judge. That level of enforcement is, in fact, obviously, in most cases, the way to go. The difficulty probably arises where here where you have increasing involvement of EU in quite specific areas of environmental law or even law in general, where uh, it's clear that the real legal issue is, for example, well, should the Commission have given permission for this product to be put on the market or that product or whatever it happens to be? And there, an argument can be made that it is far more efficient to bring the case directly to the general court rather than to have to go through the national legal order because the issue in question is always going to be the same issue. And the issue of application is not really as important as it is when it comes, for example, how do you apply the Habitats Directive to a bog in County Offaly? Or do you have standing to, to challenge? They, they are going. They are not protecting the habitat of a given animal uh, in relation to some circumstance. That's not suitable subject matter for uh, the general court. I would have thought not because the general court's afraid of taking this on, but simply because our procedures, as I pointed out earlier, we are effectively a first instance judicial review administrative law court. For instance, I haven't seen a witness uh, since I was called become a judge here seven years ago. And I have a fair inkling that I probably won't see one, at least before me, 
during the rest of my time. It's a very different court. It's a paper court in many ways, which is the way judicial review is normally run in our own country as well, by the way. That's nothing particular to the Court of Justice. I think that's an absolutely fascinating insight into the workings of the General Court and indeed many insights into some key issues in European Union environmental law. I certainly won't express any view on the access to justice issue that that case, as you said, is currently live. And I speak here, as always, in my purely personal capacity. I had been planning to ask you, Judge Collins, about particular enforcement challenges in the area of EU environmental law. But I think what we've said there in regards to standing more or less covers that. And I'm, I'm conscious we have very little time left to, to chat with you. So with a view to pulling our conversation together, could I ask you if there was one recent significant development that you would see as being especially important to support effective enforcement of EU environmental law? What would that one development be? In Ireland, without hesitation, is the judgment of Mr Justice Simons in Heather Hill, without any question. Uh, in my opinion, that's an extremely significant development. I don't know what the fate of the judgment will be on appeal. My own view is that the judgment is correct. That's my personal opinion. Uh, it seems to me that uh, the interpretation is not a particularly generous interpretation. He simply just applied what was written down. Now, if the Oireachtas doesn't like that, of course, it can amend the law in a more restrictive manner. I personally think that would be a uh, not a very uh, desirable development, but um, one cannot exclude that possibility. But the law is as written down. Why do I say that? Because access to justice is a major issue in Ireland, as we know. Actions have been taken before the Court of Justice, where the Court of Justice has effectively ruled that, at least as regards issues of EU law, that uh, people are deprived of access to justice because it's simply too expensive or too risky, I think, is in reality is the problem, the way the Irish system works. So that risk has been removed, at least as regards EU law. My own view is that uh, as long and when I mean EU law, we're, we're, we're dealing with, if you look at the Heather Hill judgment, where the purpose of the decision is to enforce or to apply EU law, which in my opinion is much far more correct position than this argument of people chopping up cases into bits and pieces as to which this is an EU law point, this is not an EU law point, because in fact the reality of the situation is that uh, I think environmental law should not be regarded as EU law, but actually as law. And when you look at it in that perspective, then I think you see that, in fact, it, it oughtn't to matter whether the point is one that's grounded in an alleged misapplication of a directive or a question of a failure, for example, to properly uh, attend to environmental standards inside the state. It's a corpus of law which ought to, should, in principle, be applied and respected by the relevant authorities. And where private citizens believe that the relevant authorities have failed to implement those rules, then there should be access. And that's why I think the Heather Hill decision is, in fact, the most important practical, from practical point of view, important decision that's been delivered uh, in this area in Ireland. And uh, one would hope that perhaps consideration will be given to ex extending this. It, it's my personal opinion that there's an argument to be made uh, in favour of a system which to some extent already exists in planning law, but as a general rule when it comes to administrative law in Ireland would be to uh, perhaps raise the standard at the leave stage, but once you obtained leave from a court uh, that you would be indemnified as for costs as against the state. That might improve access to justice in the area of administrative law. 
what I mean by raise the standard is not in planning matters. Uh, what I mean is raise the standard in general, because the general standard, leave standard, is, is deliberately low. It's not an accident. It's deliberately low. But if you were to have, use it more as a screening process, but once it's said, look, you have stateable grounds or whatever it is, well, then if you even if you lose, you ought not have to, to pay the state's uh, costs. I think that would be a welcome development. And that is, in effect, what what the outcome of the Heather Hill uh, judgment is. I think Heather Hill is a very interesting choice and uh, very pleased to see the emphasis, of course, on, on access to justice, which involves balancing access and the, the other interests that are at play as well. And again, I express no view, of course, on the merits. But Judge Anthony Collins, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing those very interesting insights, not only into the law, but also into your work uh, and how you've seen the law evolve over time. Thank you so much. Thank you.